and welcome to podcast two of Contemporary Spiritual Life Problems and Possibilities presented to you by Arate House. My name is Ruth Fitzpatrick and I'm joined by my co-host Toby Mendelson. Hello. Today we'll be following on from the last episode where we looked at the history of the East and West Spiritual Dialogue and where it delivered us. And what we're asking now is, where are we now? Now, in the 21st century. Now, Toby, a lot of different threads emerged out of the last episode. But what we're going to jump to first, which were themes that did arise in the first episode, which seemed to be this broad and vexed relationship between science and spirituality. It was there in the 19th century, it was there in the 20th century, and it is still here with us in the 21st century. And we're going to just start briefly looking at how that plays out in Buddhism today. To think about certain divisions, certain different strands arising in Buddhism today. And I want to ask you, Toby, your thoughts on this. Now, there's some Buddhisms that, and, and Buddhists that seem to want to remove those aspects of Buddhism, you might say, or present Buddhism in a way that doesn't really contain things that aren't aligned with science. Yes, I think that's certainly the case. And I think it's you know, a growing movement within contemporary Buddhism um, in the West, but not just in the West, where people want to reconcile a basic, I want to say scientific framework for understanding truth and reality with something of a Buddhist practice. So, you know, you sit and meditate, um, but your basic orientation for why you do that is thinking about its productive effects on the brain, for example or developing mindfulness so that you know, you're more capable of moving through life. Um, so there's a, you know, quite an overt project, I think, to make Buddhism fit with the kind of episteme that science offers. So in other words, science gives you the truth. So you seem to be suggesting that's not inherent within Buddhism, i.e. this relationship between Buddhism and science. How, how real versus how constructed is that to put forth kind of a crude d dialectic? Well, it's, it's very fuzzy, you know. I think there are definitely strands within Buddhist metaphysics and epistemology even, which do accord a kind of synthesis with scientific worldviews. And I think maybe the best example is actually physics. Yeah. So if you look at the way physics developed um, from kind of the early modern period, Galileo and Newton and so forth, it was very mechanistic and that doesn't fit at all well with Buddhist metaphysics but once you get to the 20th century and you get Einstein and relativity and then quantum physics all of a sudden what the physicists are telling us about reality seems to have a rather good resonance with what the Buddhist metaphysicians are telling us about reality so there's certainly strands I think within Buddhist understanding. Those elements whereby maybe there's no fixed separate object that can be labelled outside of the subject and these kind of hugely morphing intangible. So yes, there's, 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 there's absolutely that there's everything is in relation mm. and 
um, you know, that absolutely fits with the Buddhist logic of pratitya samuttada. So that element of science, of ways of knowing that, that's um, uh, pivotal to science, uh, purportedly, of testing, testing to arrive at truths um, and r- receiving certain forms of evidence to validate truths. Is that there in Buddhism in the same way? Uh, no, I mean, it's, Buddhism doesn't have that kind of empiricist, positivist methodology. But it's very pragmatic. It's got, I would say, sort of largely pragmatic in its epistemic orientation, which means that something is considered true if it works. And there is a kind of resonance there with, um, depends how you look at science, but with scientific methodologies. It's very rare to find anyone who knows a lot about science who argues that scientific truth is immutable and absolute mm-hmm. and objective. Yeah. Scientific truths become truths because they work, i.e. because jumbo jets can fly. Mm. We know enough about physics and engineering to get a jumbo jet up in the sky and landing safely. But that's not predicated on sort of absolute immutable knowledge, and our knowledge about all of these things continually changes. So there is a kind of pragmatism in scientific ways of knowing, and there's certainly a kind of pragmatism in Buddhist ways mm-hmm. of knowing, in that there's a very heavy emphasis on testing things like meditation practice and even you know, metaphysical understandings with your experience to see whether or not it works. So there's a kind of resonance there, but you know, I think one could easily go too far with it too. So do you think in some instances where, and this is the last question I'll pose on, on Buddhism, in some instances where things which don't neatly fit in with a type of scientific worldview, questions around karma and rebirth is the classic one, but a whole host of other features of Buddhism which are appear a very long way away from science, the attempt to question whether they're intrinsic to Buddhism or not. Um, what do you think about that? It's pretty interesting terrain. Uh, and maybe my viewpoint does shift around a bit on this. Yeah, so I think there is um, a pretty big contradiction there in that if you lop off some of those things, you end up with something that really doesn't look very much like Buddhism at all. It's sort of a constructed neo-Buddhism. Now, last episode, we only mentioned yoga for a brief moment, but it certainly is impossible to ignore if we're talking about um, East-West spiritual dialogue in the 21st century in that it is by a very big, big margin the most successful Eastern tradition to take stock in the West. Yet the way it has taken stock has been to quite literally transform it, it would seem, into a pre- precise contradiction of its Indian metaphysical roots. Would you like to speak to that, Toby? Well, yeah, I think it's rather interesting that when we spoke about the history of East-West transmission, and we only briefly mentioned yoga. But if you look at where we are today in the 21st century, 
yoga is it's a massive industry and it's available almost at every local gym and what's curious about that is that the practice of yoga yoga as a technique or a practice is very much anchored around the body so people that don't know their Indian history or philosophy which is most people will assume that yoga is really about the body it's about making the body more supple and flexible and healthy and losing weight and more beautiful and so forth so we all look at the Hollywood stars go off and do their yoga and it's associated with you know wellness and health and all that kind of stuff and I'm not necessarily wanting to criticize that but it's a very long way from the tradition of yoga that emerged in you know in, in Indian philosophy so the classic text is Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and the tradition is based on a kind of dualism it goes back to the Sankhya where there are two fundamental constituents of the universe posited Prakriti and Parusha and just you know to really simplify that then basically these two elements of our human nature uh, Prakriti which are the more material elements and Parusha which is the higher self and the point of yoga as a spiritual technique or practice is to turn down or even extinguish the Prakriti so that the Purusha is able to be seen or or manifest and what this really means is that you're getting rid of the body you're practicing these sort of practices which overcome the constraints of the body in order to realize the self or the higher self or the true mind whatever you want to call it so it is curious that the way yoga has taken stock in the West is a almost a precise inversion of that no pun intended with the word inversion <laughs> potentially quite a concerning inversion if you like um, which raises a lot of questions firstly one thing I'd like to add to that discussion is to remember and correct me if I'm wrong but just as with nearly all forms of meditation be they mindfulness or more of the um, advanced techniques for lack of a better term as well as the yoga asanas in their traditional context would have only been practiced by mendicants if you like right um, advanced monks yogis whose whole life was dedicated to spiritual awakening right and you know within that context that was a very legitimate um, vocation and these asanas or the meditations pranayamas were just one piece of a much broader practice and lifestyle and value system that were all pointed to you know in ideal cases to awakening well yes I mean the Patanjali's text is rather an ambitious thing to undertake you know it's a very serious occupation mm. so in a sense it's you know like you would never have had a, a sort of a small business person or something after their day at work coming home and doing asanas right that would have been very strange so in one sense 
it's not surprising is what I'm kind of saying that people aren't doing these as part of a broader pathway to awakening but rather as a kind of balm in response to a completely kind of hyper commercialized hyper sensory just you know chaotic social structure life that we've come to experience in the 21st century in that sense i don't really see anything problematic about it i mean i know it's very easy to get critical on all different levels about the yoga industry and all the people off practicing yoga for their bodies or maybe for their minds to some degree but you know i don't really see i don't really see it as such a problem i think actually it's good that people have some opportunity to you know to find some kind of rest or solace or tranquility mm. after a, a big day and yeah it can mm. it can actually be a doorway, doorway to contemplative practices and a more kind of um you know genuine attempt maybe within the yoga tradition or in some other contemplative tradition what what interests me is not so much that that's a problem but the inversion itself like what it takes for us an indian tradition in this case to take stock in the west is it to become fully material in every sense i mean it's a huge industry and it's all about the body mm. so it's it's highly materialistic that's what i find fascinating that all of the you know of all the things to come across and flourish the one thing that has really flourished is that which reifies the material mm, i'm glad you find that fascinating rather than um troubling i mean one point that it seems to raise to me which might seem a bit um, left of centre at this point but speaking of inversion and maybe it's an appropriate time to move to question things about the new age and the wellness movement which we'll come to in a second but have we come a long way from from the um, Cartesian dualism? I mean is that too now inverted where it's no longer really that that um, we've got this body down here and the mind is separated and you know um, the body doesn't really matter but the mind does and then there's been this period where and thankfully you know that that dualism has been upset and disrupted and there's this sense that they're much more integrated but increasingly there seems to be that really the locus is the body and that is what is doing all the work as far as our moods and our minds going if we just fix the body Oh, no doubt. I mean, I can tell you as a philosopher, no one is more hated than Descartes. (laughs) Cartesian dualism is seen as the most stupid idea in the whole idea of Western thinking. There has been a huge quest, I suppose, to ground a materialist conception of the self, philosophically and in all sorts of other ways. And we have some very powerful tools to do that now. We have, I suppose, some kind of combination of Darwinian evolutionary theory which is a very biological way of thinking about ourselves, with cognitive science and neuroscience. And I think all of those things operate on, I might say, on an ideological register, where people are not necessarily neuroscientists, or they don't really read neuroscience, but they nonetheless are very convinced that mind is brain. And therefore, it's responsive to material conditions like what you, what food you eat, and all these sorts of things. But what's curious about all of that is that 
there is actually a shift back to Cartesian dualism in certain areas, precisely because it's very difficult philosophically to have some kind of coherent picture of a purely materialist conception of self or subjectivity or even something we could call mind. So it's almost like we've, I feel like, we've gone as far as we can go on this materialist axiom and we're struggling. I mean, talking here about philosophers, I ah, okay. philosophers. Mm-hmm. We're struggling to actually make that into a coherent philosophy. So, yeah, maybe... Um, maybe and yet while within popular culture, it seems the very opposite. It seems to... Um, maybe, again, it's a bum because even though, you know, late capitalism and hyper-consumerism all seems about the body, actually it, you never really land in the body because you're always on a search and a quest and in a kind of agitated... Um, state to want more you know and this emphasis on trying to get embodied and live in the body and you know simplicity and stillness and even the way mindfulness practices have been reconstituted very much originally as with what you mentioned with yoga mindfulness practices were much move used to deconstruct the body in a way to even remove oneself a little from the body you know whereas now they're very much frequently used to heighten and there's no problem is heighten the pleasure of sensual experiences where that leads us um, in terms of spirituality. Um, well, I think it leads us to a vacuum where it becomes increasingly difficult to, in the 21st century, to think about spiritual life as anything connected with, quote-unquote, the mind, or, to use a loftier term, the soul. These are the things we really want to shorn away from our spiritual or contemplative life which makes us nice and safely aligned with a more kind of secular, a more scientific, a more materialist outlook. Mm. And, I, you know, I, I, do, I do want to problematize that. I think actually that's highly problematic in a lot of ways. However you term it, I think there is something about the human condition which requires a term like mind or even soul. Which is not to say there's necessarily anything psychically there which corresponds to that but that you can't really make sense of human life without some kind of category of thinking of willing of intentionality are we talking about certain you know when you when you're wanting to raise mind there's this mind brain device essentially talking about something immaterial Right, is this something Absolutely. immaterial? Absolutely. And, and going that, back to that earlier question of Buddhism and science and that um, there's a large number of people that want Buddhism to become materialist, I suppose, in its ontology. Well, I mean, if Buddhism is purely materialist, then you have to invent a new Buddhist conception of subjectivity because... In Buddhist philosophy, there's always material factors alongside mental factors. Mm. And as well, when you start looking at meditative states, for example, the four jhanas, which are the four meditative, high meditative attainments and so forth, and then getting increasingly subtle, 
Well, they are formless. They are amaterial. So at least in traditional Buddhism, it's not only possible, but it's essential or critical for the practitioner to go beyond the materiality. And to, to actually, that's the sign of attainment to some degree, to go beyond it. So it's interesting to ask, well, what would Buddhism be without that? What's the point of it? Is it just to live a more productive life or to be happy in some hedonistic sense? What would... I struggle to see what the um, purpose what is. is awakening with, what is awakening without subtle states of awareness? But well, that, also, that's exactly the point. It has to do away with any kind of notion of awakening. Which is very much at the crux, of course, of any Buddhisms somewhere. Um, and I think, sorry, and that's the case maybe with all of the traditions which have transmitted mm. from the East to the West. All of the Dharmic and Vedic traditions are in some way or another predicated on awakening. Mm -hmm. However, that's cashed out. Mm. Maybe that's the thing that uh, has been locked off. The thing that actually we don't really trust whether or not it's true. We don't believe that it's possible. That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big thing to lop off. Yes, it is. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, um. It's, it's the biggest thing to lop off. But in your opinion, is that actually what's happened after all of, you know, after the last century or two? Have we arrived at the point where we can take all the things which don't have that predication, but not that predication itself? Well, look, I think it would be very interesting to get some some more yoga insiders, because while we might have our yoga mats, I wouldn't consider myself in that category but when I think about Buddhism a couple of things there's still a great deal of commitment to awakening in many traditions um, and how they're practiced in the West and maybe in a sense people would say actually there's more emphasis on awakening because there's been a certain democratization, if you like, of, you know, and there's this strange, curious blend that many early teachers pointed out of Westerners where they sort of fit between a lay and a, and a monk in the significance of their dedication to practice, you know, so in certain ways. But I also wonder too if we're not falling here a little bit into our own dualism between matter and, and, and sort of so-called spirit or, or formless and form and think about, you know, quintessential Buddhist um, Nagarjunian philosophy, Mahamudra, these are all at, at, at their heart that they break down that dualism, no? Do you want to speak to that? Well, I'd agree with that, um, that there is this, I mean, I don't like the word non-dualism. Maybe I prefer the Mahamudra term of kind of co-emergence between mind and phenomena or our interpretation of material reality and reality itself. I agree that on some level, and not just in the Buddhist traditions, in a lot of the traditions, that dualism does break down. But I suppose what I'm pointing out is that I'm not sure many people really believe in one side of that equation. <laughs> So it, it actually begins as a monism. There is only one thing, and it's matter. And 
So that makes it non-dual to some degree, but it's not the kind of <laughs> non-dual that um, Patanjali is talking about or Nagarjuna is talking about. That actually is a nice segue, I think, to what we could call the New Age, which often has a kind of pantheistic underpinning, i.e. It, it takes a kind of, not always, but often there's a kind of Spinozist monism in that everything is kind of one sacred thing, one sacred... It has a, 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 an, an essence that's from the same source. Yeah. There's a Hindu influence also within the New Age movement. Certainly. I think um, I'm thinking it more from a, as a kind of critique of a more orthodox Judeo-Christian position, which tends to see a big distinction between God as a kind of universal and the world of matter and desire, which is a thing in the way of that. But were you maybe moving to the point where New Age um, movements, which is a far too broader category, um, given their, how diverse they are, but um, since represents a counter to this sort of... Um, materialist monism that is a sort of an idealism there that yes that's a good that, way of putting it that's um, sort of what i know, meant everything is mind actually and and the thought produces you know everything i think creates my reality kind of thing and actually it's almost very distinct from matter well no i think it's a kind of a monism in that mind and matter are seen as coextensive so it's more non-dual in the way we were just speaking mm -hmm. about more legitimately non-dual you know there's if you if you think about the, the, the earlier form of materialistic monism i was speaking about well i don't think matter is imbued with any kind of sacred quality in in that view in that our bodies and um, phenomenal reality and so forth are seen as you know very much through a scientific lens whereas that new agey version matter phenomena bodies are seen as kind of manifestations of something spiritual mm. so it's a sort of neoplatonic um or spinozist so they're quite different i think well really um as far as new age fits into this whole discussion i kind of wonder if it hasn't actually turned into the wellness movement post noughties or somewhere around the noughties I feel like you hear less and less about and less and less the term new age and it's more and more wellness movement and which kind of represents in some regard the further proliferation of so-called new age which essentially you know comes back to a whole range of eastern traditions as well as western um, tradition, spiritual traditions has moved one step more into commodification and mainstream with the wellness movement and with a further uh, the wellness movement being i think probably more influenced by these things around body that we've been talking about and i'm not saying that that's all bad but there's a sense that you know let's just really simplify things let's just get let's just slow down let's fix the body you know let's um not get into too many kind of complicated formless realms shall we say i mean so it shifted from a kind of idealism um you know post the end of the 1960s into the 70s with 
communes and hippies and crystals and all of that kind of stuff. Trying to live this kind of utopic, utopic idealism. It's shifted to something more pragmatic and more materialistic. Well, saying? look, the, the, I mean, the generation that were hippies in the 1960s are now hipsters, right? That, you right, know, yeah. th- those which would have been hippies. You know, and I'm not saying that they're all hipsters, and of course there's a lot of activism within there, but I mean, what, 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 what's the huge distinction between a hipster and a hippie? Aesthetics. Aesthetics, aesthetics. I mean, hippies obviously had their cliche aesthetics, but, you know, and it, it's, despite all of its, you know, really, really um, valid and noble rejections of kind of mass corporate um, commodification, it's still utterly anchored in commodity, right, in product, in forms of production, which you could see as a resistance to hypercapitalism and whatnot, but very different. And Again, it's highly materialist, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and, and not not utopian at all. Probably more Maybe dystopian. dystopian yeah. um, so how, what that draws from Eastern traditions, I don't know. So maybe moving too far away, and maybe you know, I don't see any connection between contemporary hipsters and <laughs> ancient, um, except maybe beards. Well, <laughs> I think what I'm saying is that it it represents it represents the extent to which maybe sort of material ideologies are actually far more powerful. Now, despite, you know, sort of post-secularism, despite the so-called rise of religion, despite this booming spiritual movement, I mean, that's just what's... That seems to be what we're uncovering here. And actually, it's an interesting point you mentioned, because there is a huge resurgence in contemporary spiritualities, but they are more orthodox, i.e. the rise in Pentecostalist Oh, that's it, rise of religion, right, traditional religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah traditional yeah, religions. Yeah. And even they have a strong materialist bent. You know, Pentecostalism is the abundance church. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a church of millions, i.e. millions of dollars. And it's a church that, you know, you, you um, ascend materially because God is blessing you. Okay. So maybe what we're really getting <laughs> to is that there's an... No, no, that's right on. There's an all-pervading materialist ideology which has some kind of epistemic foundations in science in neuroscience in evolutionary theory and so forth Mm -hmm. but also is very much connected to political economy to this period of intense late capitalism and sort of some curious combination of all these things which make it very difficult to step out of that Where's the radical in that, all of that, you might ask, where, you know, and back to the earlier point of where's the awakening, where's the renunciation, um, where's the formless, you know, or are we in our own dualism, or are we just too Marxist and transcendental? <laughs> and is that biasing everything we're, we're coming to? Well, maybe, maybe. So... Uh, is this all getting a little bit pessimistic in that we've had, going back to the history again, we've had this really interesting transmission beginning mid to late part of the 19th century through the 20th into the 21st century. But 
by the time we hit this period, what we have is an all-encompassing materialism. And anything that doesn't fit with that gets shorn off. So it's almost like the whole thing becomes a sheep and the materialist shearer comes in and just cuts off all the bits which don't fit neatly with you know, a kind of well-founded or maybe not well-founded materialist ideology. Is that where we've ended up? Is that what contemporary spiritual practice in the 21st century actually means? It's all about the body and wellness and diet and productivity. Happy, more successful. Fitter, happier and more productive. I think that would be potentially overeating in the pudding. Hmm. Let's think about, and we're going a little bit back to the 90s, you'll have to excuse me here, with, um, it's still very much around, with what the bleep, which was kind of a, a science meets new age headliner film, you know, and that's very much about physics, bringing physics to the table of spirituality and this dance where, you know, people will say, well, this it's really deconstructing our limited notions of matter you know you know even practices like pranayama which is you know even when you're taking sort of direct spiritual teachings away from yoga you you can't get away from doing pranayama which is the breathing which is the breathing exercises even mindfulness like you can say that they've all been brought down to matter but in another way they're reconstituting our relationship with matter yeah that's true it's a good point you know and as with uh, we know it's i think it's probably very skeptical spiritually the hipster movement it's trying to reconstruct our relationship to matter too isn't it Mm, i think it's been a touch generous (laughs) i suppose (laughs) Uh, they do produce very good food <laughs> and very good music. And, and food, at least, is very material. Music has slightly less materiality. Oh, but let's think about having your own meal, you know, at your bakery. And and just trying to, you know, spirituality and religion, you know, just trying a very broad general point, it's never happening in vacuums. You know, it feeds into and is shaped by, being a sociologist here, these much broader kind of social cultural trends just like they reflect and you know spirituality and religion reflects and informs those spiritual trends one last question that i'd like us to consider which is another i mean we've talked a lot in this episode about uh, i call it a contradiction or an inconsistency between some of those eastern or vedic or dharmic traditions and kind of western materialism and it's a very interesting kind of contradiction. But there's another one which I think is also kind of manifested and maybe it's also resolved in certain ways, which was there historically as this quest for a perennialism. That is this, this, this view that there's one true essence in every different spiritual or religious outlook. Mm. This is a very big idea. Um, I mean, especially in theosophy, but I don't think just in theosophy. I think a lot of people were on board with this. Aldous Huxley wrote a mm-hmm. very popular book on it. And I think Gandhi 
All religions are the same. Yeah. So it's a very a rather a dominant view. Kind of cosmopolitanism. Very cosmopolitan. And if you, th- if you look at the state of the geopolitical world today, rather healthy, even if it's not true. Because instead of a clash of civilizations, you have some kind of uncovering of a, a universal mm. sameness. But alongside that, perennialism is always a, you know, a more sectarian tendency, a tendency to demarcate one particular tradition as distinct in all sorts of ways. Mm. And when I look at contemporary spiritual practice, particularly on this east-west axiom, I do see a kind of a contradiction there, that maybe there's still some people looking for a perennialism. Mm. And there's a lot of people that are rejecting the very possibility of it and saying, actually, Tibetan Buddhism is very, very different from even Japanese Zen. Mm. Mm. And they're both Buddhist, Mahayana traditions. How different is it going to be from from yoga, for example? Yeah. Or from a Shankara, non-dualist, Vedantic tradition? In a way, um, that also reflects this, that period of, you might say, more optimistic openness was also, in a sense, characterised by a kind of ignorance or not a huge degree of engagement yet. You know, those um, interactions and dialogues between actual practitioners and, you know, um, Western interpreters and and vice versa were only really just happening. Mm. You know, whereas now, to speak of Buddhism, you know, for the first time ever in the history of, of Buddhism, you have virtually every variant of Buddhist tradition in you know in the same country or you know in a place like San Francisco in in, the, in a one city you well know. dare I say the internet and actually um, this might be a case where ignorance is bliss because mm-hmm. before all these different traditions were able to communicate with each other one could safely assume in ignorance that they were roughly the same mm-hmm. and they had roughly the same outlooks and and whatever else but Buddhism on the internet hasn't gone very well. There's been, um, I mean, it's been really eye-opening to see how mm. difficult it is for different tradition or, traditions or strands of Buddhism to communicate with each other. So there's this... Uh, but fam- is, that, um, is that Eastern practitioners or Western practitioners of those traditions? Well, actually, it's both. I mean, the, um, there was a very famous site called e-sangha, so virtual sangha, virtual community of Buddhist practitioners. And it had every tradition under the sun, practitioners east and west, and, you know, very good scholars and teachers, as well as a lot of people that didn't know very much about anything. Uh, So it was both, but of course it was in English. So, I mean, it wasn't like it was in Tibetan or Mm. Japanese, um, which tells us something. But yeah, I mean, it was eye-opening to see how many clashes there were and, I mean, it became basically troll-central. No, maybe that's a bit harsh. There were there's a lot of good discourse mm. and a lot of mutual understanding took place. But alongside that was this ever-present um, friction. Well, the internet does seem to have a curious um, way of producing that in a whole range of spheres, though. Can we take that as emblematic of what would happen on the ground if these people were actually sitting... Together, I mean, when you go and see the Dalai Lama talk, you'll see a host of, of monks and nuns from different traditions in different robes, which, again, is entirely unprecedented historically. 
Yeah, I think I'd be happy to grant that. I think it is something very much connected with not seeing people face to face. I mean, the whole logic of a clash of civilizations, which unfortunately is manifesting in our everyday political worlds at the moment, I think it is predicated on a lack of genuine face to face encounter. Mm. You can only have those clashes when you're constructing mm. and demonizing some kind of imagined other. That's at an arm's length. Yeah. So I granted that one. To posit you a final question, perhaps, um, leading from that, once again, we've pointed out maybe some apparently negative sides of things. There's certainly growing sectarianism in areas and this sort of tendency for things to get quite materialised. If this is the if this is a less positive um, materialization of kind of the east west spiritual dialogue, what are some where do you think where would you like to see it going? What do you think needs to happen to produce something um, more reassuring, optimistic, enlightened? Actually, I wouldn't have had a good answer for that except that I had a conversation only a few days ago, sitting by the fire. And it, out of that conversation emerged a good answer, mm. which is, I think what's necessary are genuine practitioners actually uncovering genuine realizations. Mm-hmm. So people actually becoming proper yogis and yoginis in whatever traditions, or contemplatives, or mystics, or prophets, or sages, or whatever you want to say. I think that's where the fa- if there's been a failure, it's been there. It's that, you know, the hippies became the hipsters. They didn't necessarily produce what they wanted to produce in the 60s, which mm. was, you know, the kind of glorious awakening. They became the boomers, but the next generation became the hipsters, yeah. And, yeah, so there's, I think there was a, a big disillusionment with that whole possibility, which we were talking about before. So I think, in a way, the whole idea of, Coming awakened gets watered down because basically because people don't think it's possible. And though, can I can we come back to political economy here? Um, and I can't help but think of uh, you know Western Nutton, who's one amongst a whole range of other sort of social activist endeavours, really champions the needs for more support for Western ordained sangha. But my more general point is. Does this, does the social framework allow for it? You know, to go back to a much earlier point I made, the people originally doing the asanas and doing the mindfulness meditation had the structure that enabled their whole life to be dedicated to it. Is that required? Or is it that we live and breathe this social, cultural, political economy and still manage to achieve and be dedicated and believe in awakening? Well, surely it's a bit of both. I mean, it's true to say that in the case of Buddhism, for example, it flourished when it was supported politically and economically in whatever period. So there's no doubt an intimate connection between political and economic conditions and then those sorts of possibilities, like the great philosophical works. And, you know, a lot of the great masters came out of that kind of support. At the same time, though, I mean, you could even think about the Buddha himself as someone who, at least as the narrative goes, 
explicitly rejected the those sorts of conditions and went off to live as an ascetic not so much neoliberal conditions no. but obviously he was born in a well he was born a, as, as a prince with very good conditions and he gave them up Indeed. and i think that's that's something that um a lot of us are not prepared to do maybe we're too fearful or we don't think it's possible or it's a bit insane to give mm. that kind of stuff up mm. so we don't but i think to some degree it's necessary to be able to say okay the conditions are not ideal but you know bugger it we have to give it a crack mm. um there seems to be a real reticence about doing mm. that and um if you go back to that question what do i think is necessary for mm. all of this to start succeeding and to some degree it is succeeding it's more and more people prepared to make that kind of step mm. and that means becoming a genuine yogi or yogini or mm. whatever and that might mean working in a bank but it might mean living in poverty mm. being prepared to do it is the key and then really standing and anchoring in whatever is uncovered there mm. and no doubt that will be modes of knowledge that may well not be entirely in accord with a neuroscientific or materialist or Darwinist or even Freudian paradigm. May not. May not. Stay tuned for more of that. I think it is a natural ending. So well, thank you very much for, your, for listening to us. Uh, there'll be more on the way. Um, please consider donating given what we just said actually it's a rather funny request but please stay tuned for more episodes of spiritual life in the 21st century problems and possibilities we are working to produce as much quality free content as possible we would deeply appreciate your support whether in through financial donations or any other skills or attributes you might like to share with a writer yeah we're especially interested at this stage because we're still a very young organization in connecting with people who are interested in some of the ideas that we're discussing um, you might be a yoga practitioner or a buddhist scholar or just someone with an interest in these areas um, so don't hesitate to get in contact with us you can find our website at aratehouse.com.au and feel free to let us know what you think or how you might want to jump on board with what we're doing. And without any further ado. Au revoir. Au revoir. Thanks for listening. <laughs>